We're continuing in our study in Romans this morning, and as we come to the end of Romans chapter 8, we come to the end of what really is, in my opinion, the greatest single chapter in all of Scripture. I mean, if you were sta- stranded on a desert island and you can only have one chapter of the Bible with you, uh, choose Romans 8, uh, because it will, it will do, uh, it will do the job. And, and, and for eight straight chapters now, Paul has been like laying out the gospel, laying out these arguing, uh, arguments, laying out uh, persuasive arguments, rationalizing with us, logically teaching us the gospel. And in the last nine verses, eight chapters, now he's going to start to preach. And now you're going to get to hear Paul, what I would say, Paul at his best. Paul actually preaching uh, the message of the gospel down into uh, our hearts. He stops analyzing, arguing, and rationalizing. He starts preaching. It's almost like he's standing on his tiptoes and, and, and shouting us question after question. And through his passion, he's driving the gospel down into our hearts, minds, lives, and uh, souls, giving us words that we can't live without. So let's read God's word together. Read with me Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at God's right hand? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Having read it aloud, we could stop now and have our souls nourished and fed. And as we continue, we pray that you would Continue to open our eyes, open our ears, nourish and feed us from the power of your word. It's in the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, I think God is concerned to teach us this morning, uh, to teach you and me through these words, how to preach. Not how to stand up here, not how to deliver a sermon, uh, not how to speak in public, but how to preach the gospel to yourself. Paul, Paul says, what, what, what then shall we say to these things, right? He's asking for a response. We know he's moving into sermon mode because he says, what do we say? What's our response going to be? And in one sense, he says, I've laid out eight chapters of, uh, of amazing doctrine. And in one sense, you st- words can't do justice. You stand speechless before it. 
But another says, in another sense, Paul says we must say something. There must be a response to all that has been said or else the gospel is not true. And, and Paul moves into preaching because preaching is what takes something, that, something that's just true out there, like a proposition is propositionally true, and makes it real in our hearts, something that we know and experience and feel. Uh, it, it's preaching because it takes something that, yes, we all believe that that's accurate, but it takes it and actually makes it change our lives. That's what preaching does. And Paul is saying, how do you preach the gospel to yourselves? See, he's saying there's a difference in being convinced of the truth and then being changed by the truth. Those are two different things. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of true things I am convinced of. They have no impact on my life. I, I am absolutely convinced that eating huge, fat, greasy cheeseburgers is bad for my health. I, I'm convinced the medical science is true. It's correct. has no impact on my life. I love, I love some, big che- some big cheeseburgers. I pile some cheese on and some bacon. And, you know, like if I had my way, I would like collect the grease drippings and use it as like an au jus sauce or something to dip it up. And that's disgusting, isn't it? Maybe that was an exaggeration a little bit. Uh, the point is... There's a lot of things I'm convinced are true that are not changing my life, but it cannot be so with the gospel. See, we live in a culture, I would call this the whatever culture. We hear something, we just say, whatever. It's cynical, skeptical, and bored. Cynical, skeptical, and bored. So whatever culture. You just, anything that comes, whatever, that's fine. I want to do my own thing. If that happens with the gospel, we walk out of here saying whatever to the gospel. If we walk out of here even just saying, yeah, I agree with that, good, check, check the box. We've missed it. We've missed the power of the gospel if it doesn't grip us and change us. And Paul is saying, what am I going to say to these things? What are you, what then shall we say to these things? It's the question he's asking you, and how are you going to say them? He's saying, you've got to learn to preach. You've got to learn to preach this gospel to your own heart, soul, mind, and life in order for it to actually change you, to get it down into your heart. There's a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. He was a pastor in London, kind of famous in the 1900s. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. And now you might say, I know a lot of you are saying, you know what, I don't even like sermon. I don't like even really coming to church. I don't like all the preachy stuff. I don't like being preached to. I don't like being preached at. I don't like being preached near But here's the deal. This is not the only sermon you're going to hear. A sermon is just a message uh, trying to help us shape our life and heart around the truth. How many of those you're going to get in the next 24 hours? Everything is a sermon. You wake up in the morning, there's a sermon already in your head, a a voice in your head already talking to you. You get on Facebook, Twitter, there's messages coming out, you trying to shape who you are, what you believe, what you'll do. You get on the internet, surf the internet, you watch TV, you get commercial, your wife talks to you, your husband talks to you, your kids talk to you. Sermons are coming at you constantly from everywhere. How, are you gonna, how is the gospel going to override all those? How are you going to preach the gospel down into your own heart? How is it going to be real to you? And this is what Paul's talking about this morning. What then are you going to say to these things? And Paul says generally the messages come at us, the sermons come at us in the world from really three, three places. We get messages from below, messages from within ourselves, and then messages from without, uh, outside in, in life in the world. And the first thing he says, messages from within, uh, from below, sorry. Notice that Paul, in verse 31, he goes from what, what shall we say, 
to who? Who will separate us? It, goes to, it gets personal, right? Who's he talking about there? Who will, who, who will, uh, he says, if God is for us, who will stand against us? He's got to be thinking here of Satan. It gets very personal. He says the, 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 he's thinking of the one who would stand against God and anybody that aligns with God. The message coming at you is a message of doubt. That's, that's the message. That's always the strategy. Look at verse 31 again. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Who could be against you? Answer, a lot of people right? I mean, come on, Paul. My, my wife, my boss, my lack of a job, my medical condition, um, any, anything. Sometimes it feels like the whole world is against me. What do you mean? Who can be against me? Paul's preaching already. He's saying, if God is for us, though, what does it matter if the whole world is against me? If God is for us, who can be against me? We look around and say, we see everything else. We say, there's no way that God is for me. There's no way he is. He's got to be against me. And Satan uses these things to create a message, a sermon that's coming out you that creates doubt about God's goodness. And this was Satan's intention from the beginning, right? You go back to that Genesis story, Genesis chapter 3. What does he say to Eve? The very first thing, Eve, did God really say you can't have this fruit? And, if you, and, and the original language is so clear that what he's doing is implying isn't God withholding from you? He doesn't want your good. He's not for you. He is against you. He's withholding something good from you, Eve. That's the sermon from below. I'll give you a practical example of this. Uh, last year for a uh, period of probably four months, uh, I, I was suffering with a, just an intense, acute abdominal pain. It was, it was just there constantly. Sometimes I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't work. Uh, I couldn't be a, a father, a husband, a pastor. And, and all kinds of times, I went to every doctor, had every test. Everything was, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, tried to take medicine. Nothing worked. Tried to fast. Tried to eat. Tried to change. Nothing worked in this acute pain. And sometimes all I could do was just curl into a ball in the bed and just wait it out. And after about the third or fourth month of that, what do you think the thought is what's the thought in my head god i thought you were for me right i thought you were for me i thought you were on my side i thought you were for me and i was trying to you know i'm trying to be a pastor i'm trying to do your work and here i can't even stand up what's the deal with that and paul answers the question how do you preach yourself in that moment? What's the response? What are you going to say to those things? Answer is verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You have to let the words wash over. You have to hear Paul preach you have to hear Paul preaching. You have to hear him teaching you to do it. You have to stop listening to yourself and actually start talking to yourself with the message. Look at the word spare there. The word spare. He did not spare his own son. Uh, that, that word brings back, uh, Paul is actually alluding to a famous Old Testament story. You might know the one I'm talking about, Genesis 22, when God asked Abraham to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Right? Remember that story? Uh, I, I, I read this story often to my, uh, 
to my family, my boys, in the kids' Bible, and, and we always say, we're always talk, I'm talking to the kids, and I'm saying, now he takes Isaac, and he lays him on the altar, and he wraps him up, and then he raises the knife over him, and the knife is coming down. And I say, Jude, what did God say? He says, stop. God said, stop. Don't hurt the boy. He's going to be spared. He spared Isaac. Why did he spare Isaac? Why didn't he deliver Isaac? Why didn't he give Isaac up? He spared Isaac. He spared the son of Abraham. He spared you and me because he knew that he would not spare his own son. And Paul is saying, look around at all the things creating doubt in your life. What is creating doubt right now in your heart? What is making you look at God right now and say, there's no way you could be for me? There's no way I can believe. There's no way I can trust you in any way, shape, or form. And he's saying, God did not spare his own son for you. Won't he give you everything else you need? There is nothing to be done that has not been done for me and for you. You've heard the phrase, he spared no expense. Maybe you watch the royal wedding. Maybe you watch Harry, Prince Harry get married. Right? And, and, and you look at you and said, man, they spared no expense. Everything was taken care of. Everything was thought of. Every decoration, every party, every, everything was done. He spared no expense. And then imagine if, if, if the day after that wedding, spending like $5 million on a wedding, and then and, and, and Harry came to his dad and said, uh, is it William? It's William, actually, yeah, sorry. I don't even, I didn't watch it. <laughs> so imagine William comes to his dad and says, that was a fun wedding, Dad, but, but, but what are we going to, am I, I going to have anything to eat tomorrow? Son, you're deranged. You're the prince. I just spent $5 million on a wedding. I think I can feed you. I think, I think you'll be taken care of. That's what God is saying to us right now is that what are you looking around and seeing in your life? How, are the, how is the message from below bubbling up and making you doubt? And how are you going to start to preach to yourself and say, but he didn't spare his own son. He'll give me everything I need. And I know a lot of you think right now, you know what? I don't like that whole didn't spare a son, judgment, sacrifice, um, blood, archaic, it's archaic, it's weird, it, it's old, it sounds tribal, it sounds, it, sounds, it sounds awful to me. And I know a lot of you kind of have that, have that thought. And you might say, you know, I just believe in a good God. I just believe in a loving God. I believe God is for everybody. He's always for us. He's, he's just kind of, you know, lovingly kind, always for me. Let me ask you, if that's the God you believe in, what did he pay to have you love him? What did he pay to demonstrate his love for you? Will that God of sappy sentimentalism, of hazy emotionalism, will that God engender anything passionate in your heart? Will that God cause you to stand up and say, what can I say to these things? I've got to give my life to it. Will that God give you hope or comfort or security when terrible things come in your life? No, because that God's just a feeling, a sentimental feeling. And when the feeling gets shaken, that God is going to get shaken and die. Instead, we're able to go back to the gospel and preach it to ourselves and look at verse 32 and say, He didn't spare His Son. He'll give me everything I need. I've got to anchor. To put my, I can anchor my soul in that for eternity. 
That's the message from below. There's also a message from within as well. I think it's internal. We're kind of always talking to ourselves. We're always kind of hearing our internal dialogue, hearing our voice. And, and honestly, it's not always good. Uh, look at what Paul says in verse 33 and 34. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is going to condemn? And, and this is courtroom language. Uh, this is like going on trial, right? Uh, who, who brings a charge? That's courtroom language. And, and you know, like, I remember back when I was kind of, you know, a new Christian. You might remember if you were a new Christian, you kind of think, I got this Christian life thing kind of figured out. I'm kind of smooth sailing. I'm good at it. I'm a pretty good guy. God's lucky to have me on his team. You know, and then as you kind of go and grow, you're like, you start to look inside more. Like, hmm, I didn't see that in my heart before. That's, that's kind of a, an accusation, a charge that could be leveled against me. I didn't see all that greed and lust before. I didn't see all that anger and pride there soaking in beneath before. I didn't see the fact that my tongue is untamable. I didn't see those things before. And now I'm starting to see them. I'm starting to pile up. Before I thought, you could put all the accusations against me. You know, you have that trial. Put those on an index card. There they are. Now you start to think about it. And it's like, you know, those trials you see on TV. And like, it takes like 50 FBI agents to like bring in, you know, all the boxes of, of evidence against somebody. So it's like, that's what he's saying. It's like, you're standing there in the courtroom. God is the judge. And there's evidence piled up to the ceiling. And he says, who could bring a charge against you? And you're like, it's stacked to the ceiling constant charges and guess what it's all true what do you do with that you look at yourself and internally the message from within is i'm cut off i'm condemned he says who can condemn you right and the message is look at yourself god couldn't love you he wouldn't want you you couldn't be his daughter. You couldn't be his son. You couldn't be part of that family. Look at you. Look at those charges stacked up. That's the message from within. You start to believe the condemning message. You know what I think our greatest cultural symbol is? I think our greatest cultural symbol in our, here in the West is, is the mirror. You know that just like a few generations ago, there were almost no mirrors. Almost nobody had a mirror. Now we put mirrors all over the house. I go to the gym, there's full-length mirrors like on every wall. I got to see myself like 25 times back through all the reflections, right? So everywhere we go, we're looking at ourselves, we're seeing ourselves, we're trying to uh, fix ourselves. And you know what? All the psychiatrists and counselors and therapists, you know what they're all saying about the mirror culture? After a couple generations of looking at ourselves and trying to fix ourselves, none of us are liking what we see. And the message from within is growing con- condemnation, condemned. It can't be, it can't be, me. My mom has one of these mirrors. Uh, she comes to visit us, and, and she has like this mirror that's like a, a, lamp, a lamp and a mirror and a magnifying glass all together. And I, it's round. It goes like on your desk. I don't, even, I don't really know what you girls do with these mirrors. I don't know why anybody would want one. I saw it when she was visiting. I saw it on her dresser one day, and I actually went and looked at it. I looked in it, and it was like this right here, like boom, eight times the size it was like a, being in a haunted house just like boom totally freaked me out and i'm like who wants to look in this thing and see that um that's what we do though we look in the mirror and then this message is growing there's a sermon coming at us constantly uh from within and we're getting freaked out and then we make it worse because we don't only look in the mirror but then what do we do we compare ourselves to each other right 
Look at him, man. I wish I could be like him. I wish I was more like him. I wish I was a better parent like that. I wish I had more money like that. I wish I had his education. I wish I had this, 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 this. On down the line, we start to compare and compare and compare, right? And then we do it with our kids. Ah, I wish my kids behaved like that. I wish my kids were like their kids. I wish my kids looked like those. I wish my kids were, you know, walking and talking as early as their kids are walking and talking. Are my kids normal? The answer is no, because you're making them crazy. We start to compare ourselves. We're looking in the mirror. We're, we're comparing ourselves. And you see, all those messages and sermons, are, they're, they're from within. And here's the problem. They're about you. They're about me. They're about you. They, and that will never work. If you go hear any sermon, any pastor preach any sermon, I don't care how good he is. I don't care how good a speaker he is. I don't care how comfortable, how engaging, how winsome, how funny. I don't care if the sermon ends up being about you. It is a terrible sermon. The sermon better end up being about Jesus or it's not going to be a good sermon and it's not going to help you. And Paul is saying, okay, now, verse 34, let's go to Jesus. Look at what he says. Look at how he answers the message from within, the accusation. He stops looking in the mirror. He stops looking at people and he starts looking at Jesus. He says, in verse 33, what does he say? Who can bring a charge? Nobody. God justifies me. Nobody else has that who can condemn and then he says this christ jesus is the one who died more than that he was raised more than that he's at the right hand of the father more than that he's interceding on your behalf who will condemn you paul says go to jesus he died more than that he was raised more than that he's at god's right hand he has the ear of god the father sitting right next to him and then more than that he says indeed he is interceding for us what does that mean interceding pleading advocating this is a picture of the judge of the universe the king of all the world sitting up in heaven on a throne sitting next to god the father and what is he talking about he's talking about you he's talking about me how's he spending his time he's talking about you he's talking about me what is he saying father see that one he is mine she is mine. He owed. She owed. But I paid. He was guilty. The accusations stacked to the ceiling. But I have borne the punishment, and no one can condemn him. You have to go to Jesus and preach that to yourself and live and wash in that reality. That Jesus is there. We live in a world where people use power and authority to do the most perverse things. Even religion today is used as a tool of manipulation and control and power and a power play. How does Jesus use his power and authority? To die for you. To be raised from the dead for you. And to plead his salvation on your behalf. That is the mercy. That is the love of Christ. How do you know if you're getting this? How do you know that you're preaching this? How do you know you're actually getting it? Two quick tests. Number one, when you look at other people in the world, in the culture, in your neighborhood, in your small group, in your workplace, whatever, and you see that you know, they're, they're a better father or mother than you, they're a better um, husband, wife than you, they're a better person than you, they're wealthier than you, they're more gifted at this than you, whatever. When you look at that person, are you able to be glad for them? Are you able to thank God for them and to learn from them rather than resent them and wish you could be them? 
That's one way you know I'm not condemned. I don't have to be them. I'm not them. Second way, because I know a lot of you are thinking, well, all that no condemnation is going to lead for a really like lax, complacent Christianity. You know, my sins are forgiven. I just sit back and relax. And if you're saying that, you just have not understood the gospel. And here's what, here's what, Paul, here's what Paul's going to say. Here, here's test number two. Test number two is, how do you receive criticism? Somebody says, here's a sin, here's a problem, here's something in your life. How do you receive that? Example, last night, we're getting ready to go somewhere. My wife says to me, honey, you're, you're being, uh, I can tell you're very grumpy, uh, you're in a bad mood, you're being kind of uh, rude, impatient with me, impatient with the kids, that kind of thing. How did I respond to that? What are you talking about? I'm not grumpy. You're grumpy. You're the one that's grumpy. You didn't see me while I go. I was helping with so-and-so. I was doing that. Totally defensive, right? Why is that? Because I don't believe the gospel. I hear her with words of condemnation, and there's no condemnation coming from her. It's a message from within. But once the condemnation is gone, once I, once I don't have to worry about condemnation, that frees me now. I'm free to actually say, honey, you know what? That's true. And so is a whole lot more. That's true, and so is a whole heck of a lot more. And then I can actually start to deal with it. Then I can actually start to change. How do you receive criticism? Why are you so thin-skinned? Do you even have people that are willing to come point things out to you, or are they so afraid of your reaction? Paul's saying you get the gospel. It liberates you from the court of public opinion. Don't you want to be free from having to be justified by the mirror or by your neighbor or by your coworker or by anybody else? Instead, he's saying Jesus is the one who died, was raised, is seated, and now sits at the right hand of the Father pleading on your behalf. I don't have to be defensive. Jesus is my defender. He's pleading on my behalf. I don't have to be defensive. That's verse 34. And then there's... So there's the message from below, there's the message from within, and there's a message from without. Outside, pressures, pain, things that you might have never anticipated. Things when you became a Christian, uh, if you're a Christian today, you might have thought, I became a Christian because I thought this would be kind of an easy life. Things would be kind of smooth sailing if, 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 if I did that. But look what Paul says in verse 35. Just gives us a nice list here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For your sake, we're being killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You hear what Paul's saying? The message from without? Sometimes you feel like you're just a sheep being led to the slaughter. Sometimes you feel like everything is pressing in on you. Sometimes you feel like, when is the dark cloud ever going to, li- going to lift? And the message from without is that look at what's happening in your life. The love of Christ is nowhere to be found. How can you say God loves you? How can you say Jesus loves you, right? This is the same struggle Christians, non-Christians alike, we both face. How can you say God is so good and so loving and so powerful and yet my life stinks? Life is hard. How can you say those things? How do we preach the gospel to ourselves in that time? When suffering comes to your life, what's the message? It's the message that God is gone. If life is bad, then God's love has turned sour. And you must be separated from the love of Christ or else none of this would ever be happening. None of this would be in your life, right? That's the message. That's the message that you're getting. Uh, as an analogy, I was just thinking about this this week, but 
you know, the weather has been awesome, right? I mean, we've had some great weather. It's been fall weather. It's been cool but not cold, warm but not hot, you know, clear skies, sun. And yet we all know what's around the corner, right? The St. Louis winter. It's here. It's coming. It's going to be gray and dark and cold and, and drizzly and, and freezing rain is going to be, you know, coming. We know that's coming. Now, when that comes, you guys have experienced, almost everybody here has probably lived here more than a year. When you guys have experienced the St. Louis winter and, and you're there and you look up and you can't see the sun, the skies are gray and dark and it's cold and drizzling and raining, and you look up and, and you can't feel the sun's warmth, you can't see its brightness, does anybody ever go, sun must be gone? <laughs> Somebody must have extinguished it. No, you, you just naturally know it's still burning as bright and beautiful and strong and powerful as it ever was, even though you can't feel it at the moment. And what, and what Paul is saying is that as Christians, we are going to have, we know that somewhere around the corner is a dark day. If it's not a dark day today, somewhere around the corner is one. A day when you can't see the sun, a day when you can't feel the warmth of the light of God. A day when you, you grope around in the dark, seamlessly feeling, where is God? I don't feel Him. I don't see Him. I don't know Him. Maybe I'm separated from Him. And Paul is saying, the sun is still as bright and strong and powerful and connected to you and working on your behalf as he, God is as much as He ever was. How do you preach that to yourself? And I know that it gets sensitive here because some of you right now in this very moment, are in the darkest of days, and you can't see the sun. And you're saying, as you know what, the only, the only testimony I receive about that is somebody that's been there before me. Somebody that's also experienced that, right? That's Paul. Look at Paul. Read the book of Acts sometime. Read the end of 2 Corinthians. You'll see what Paul ha- has been through. He says that there are all the things listed there, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, sore, danger. He went through them all and more. He was shipwrecked three times. He was stoned. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. And yet he's able to write these verses. And I want to point out one word in this verse just to take you to his life because he uses the word sword. See it at the end of verse 35? The end of verse 35, the word sword. That word sword is not the word for the Roman legion sword like the, the war sword. That is the word for the sword of execution. The sword that, that, was, that was leveled against Rome's enemies. If you were arrested and you were put to death, that was the sword that came down across your neck. And we know that just a few years after Paul wrote these words, that persecution broke out everywhere in Rome because Nero was the emperor, and he began to persecute the Christians. And just a few years after writing this letter, Paul himself was called to the executioner. And the sword that he mentions here prophetically was raised over his head. Paul could have said, I recant, I'm done, I'm out. It would have been over. But he had a confidence that even though he might not, I don't know if he could, what he saw, thought, felt, but I wonder if he didn't think back to this verse. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall sword? And then he answers in verse 37. I guarantee he had to be thinking of verse 37 as the sword came down. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you see what's happening. As the force of that sword is starting to come down, Paul says there's a greater force. 
that, that sword, as powerful as it was, as powerful as it is, there is a greater force in the universe, and you and I can have it. In essence, he's saying all the thing, the currency of the world, the money of the world, the currency of the world is fame and fortune and security and status and, and, and comfort and bank accounts and, and all these things. And Paul is saying, and the ultimate payment in the world's terms is what? Life, death, to give your life, to, to die. And Paul is saying, in essence, it's monopoly money. All that's monopoly money. Paul was playing with real money. Paul was vested in a real retirement plan. And when the sword began to fall, he knew that the sword would only serve for him to be a conqueror because it would, he would awaken face-to-face with his Savior. And not only a conqueror, the word is Nike there, victory, right? The word Nike like swoosh. The word is Nike, and he says hyper-Nike, super-Nike, super-victory. He says, I'll be super-victorious because you and I are still talking about it this morning, and God is using the very thing they thought they conquered Paul with to not only allow him to conquer, but allow him to be more than a conqueror because it's using it to strengthen my faith and your faith this morning that when we can't see the sun, it's still there, burning bright and beautiful and strong as it always was. And Paul says, I went there. How did he go there? See what it says in verse 38? I am sure. There are not many things in life I'm sure of. But he says, I am sure. He had to be sure because he was staking his life on it. How did he get the surety? How did he get the comfort? How did he get the assurance? How did he preach it down into himself? Again, any good sermon is about, not about me, not about you, not even about Paul. Who's it about? It's about Jesus. And he constantly is preaching. He says the love of Jesus three times. 35, the love of Christ. 37, him who loved us. 39, the last thing he says, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And think about the love of Christ. Why we can't be separated from him. Think about his ministry. When he came, remember what happened? He was baptized. As soon as Jesus was baptized, what happened? Heavens opened. Voice from heaven came down. What? This is my beloved son. Matthew 17, he transfiguration. He goes up onto a mountain. It says he's transfigured before us. Again, heavens open. Jesus is praying. And God the Father comes down with a voice, comforting, assuring his son, you are my beloved son. And then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion. He's praying, 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 sweat drops of blood coming out, praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Silence. No answer. And he gets on the cross. If you notice, every time Jesus ever prayed in Scripture, Father, you're my Father, Abba, Father, I pray to Father. On the cross, what does he say? Not Father. God, God, why have you forsaken me? Only time he ever uses the formal name of God. And what he's saying is that the love of Christ is so great, so big, so powerful, so beautiful that he was separated from his Father. He was separated from the eternal love of of his own father so that you and I could say I am sure we can say I'm sure nothing can separate me nothing can separate me from the love of God the father in Christ Jesus do you want to be a person who can still feel and see the sun even when it's not shining do you want to be a person who's free from condemnation 
messages, sermons are going to come to you from all over. They'll come from below and raise doubt. God can't be for you. They'll come from within. God can't love me. They'll come from without. Look at all this suffering in your life. You, will be, you can't be connected to God. You must be separated from him. Those messages are powerful, but there's one message that is more powerful. And it's the message from above. Read it. Memorize it. Take this passage home. Memorize it. Cut it out of the Seasons Weekly. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your desk. Wash yourself in it. Preach it to yourself. Get it down in your heart. Because those messages are powerful and they're coming at you every day. But the message from above is more powerful. And the message of above ends with Paul saying, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.